a very good morning to you. Welcome in to the programme today. A quick update, by the way, on Miller's Lane as we speak uh, today. Uh, just bear with me one second. Uh, just got a note from Anthony Thrill to say, Keith, uh, thanks, Keith. Apologies if I came across the wrong way. No apology needed, Anthony. You were just upset. Uh, hi, Keith. I've just been told that the horses, this is from Anthony as well, I've just been told that the horses broke out from a nearby farm and made their way to Miller's Lane on their own. If the fences had been around the pitches, they would have been no damage done. Uh, so there you go. So the horses broke out from a nearby farm and made their way to Miller's Lane. I can't go, okay. I don't buy that, but sure, there you go. I really don't buy it, uh, but we'll see from there how that happened. But um, a lot of calls and comments coming into us uh, today, I have to say. And um, the majority of, of them, we, we just cannot uh, broadcast, to be quite honest, um, from a balanced point of view. Uh, but again, some people saying all of the horses in question uh, should be microchipped. And if they're microchipped, um, there would be um, no issues with them. Uh, it's terrible, Keith, what's happening in Miller's Lane. Kids and communities are suffering again. Uh, typical city council, uh, same in Ballinfoil Park, trying to take away a little of the green area uh, that we have from there. It's absolutely dreadful, uh, this caller said uh, from there. And um, now let me go to uh, Joe Fitzgerald and um, Vincent Raleigh who joined me. Uh, on the line today uh, because we're going to go the nature restoration law is going to wipe out hill farming um, so says the INHFA they're both in Strasbourg today and they join me on the line today uh, gentlemen a very good morning to you thanks for joining us uh, today is there any way that this um, vote can be postponed in any way can you hear me at all Joe? Hello? Like, uh, yeah I can, yeah. Vincent here, yeah. I can hear you fine Vincent, now, yeah. Who are we talking to? Keith, 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 yeah. Keith Finnegan here. How are you today? Sorry. We're ha- Strasbourg is not the, 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 the hybrid of, of um, internet, I'm afraid. <laughs> Listen, this vote is going ahead, so it is uh, today, uh, Vince. But is there any chance that it can be postponed? Because I don't think this has been thought out at all. No, look, uh, as you say, um, it's gone ahead in, in the next hour. They're going to start voting on this. Um, now, the, the vote, I'm told, is tight enough, but that remains to be seen. But the expectation, unfortunately, as far as we're concerned, is that, that the vote will be passed. Um, and as you say, look, we, we do think this is poorly thought out. Definitely, it's rushed and uh, it needs to go back for, for, for proper consideration because uh, the implications for, for farming and also rural areas yeah. uh, because that maybe hasn't got, hasn't got as much focus uh, is immense. But can I ask you, um, what is this going yeah. to do? So if, if this, first off, so if this is passed today, I mean, we know Europe is slow. I mean, it's deadly slow, so it is. But how quickly will this become a reality uh, on the green fields of Ireland? Well, I think uh, what's going to happen then, I think there is a final ratification, as, as far as you understand, by the Council of Ministers. But, um, and then it, kind of, it goes into the statute books. What's going to happen at that stage is it'll come back, then each country will have to draft a national plan. Based, but that national plan is, is within the framework of what is currently there is what is currently agreed. So so like it's not like we come up with our own plan that's totally alien to, to, to what, what has been agreed okay. here. Um, that national plan will be done in the next year. So we'll be looking definitely at seeing this coming into play late 2025, probably 2026. So I don't know, you're an artist. I mean, of canvas now I'm talking about now. I'm not talking about walls, um, but are you an artist? Can you paint a picture for me in your interpretation as to 16 months down the road, what will be foisted on the people of Ireland? 
Um, well, it could be a little bit longer than that. Um, oh, two years. So then you're going to see the yeah. implications. Yeah, uh, two to three years. But look, what, what and maybe immediately once this comes in, there is concerns uh, definitely around those what, what they will te- term degraded ecosystems. So that is your drained peat soils. Uh, a lot of that in the lowlands and also the lands on the hills that is in need of restoration. So obviously the first thing is if it's deemed to be in need of restoration, then there's going to be a major problem there straight away. And that could, for farmers, could impact uh, on the, the, the common agriculture policy supports because, you know, all farmland has to be compliant with what they call good agriculture and environmental condition. So obviously if it's deemed to be or seen to be a degraded ecosystem, then we challenge that. But if that's how it's seen, then it may not be hitting the environmental condition. Now, I know they're saying they're getting guarantees around that, but that remains to be seen. Um, there is another issue then, of course, this land... Uh, Farm produce produced from these lands could also be deemed could also be tainted because, at the moment, you know there's a lot of issues, especially at European level, about taking in food from uh, the Amazon rainforest or from yeah. what, you know what was the Amazon rainforest and say we don't want to take that because that's a degraded ecosystem. Um, but uh, ironically enough, in this law, there are what they call mirror regulations. So those mirror regulations means that if you're not going to take it in from another country, then they can turn around and say, but you can't use your own. So, so there is an issue straight away there as well as regards food. Um, and, and look, we, we look in, in Galway, you have Connemara Hill Lab, which has, you know, a P, PGI status uh, yeah. and is seen as, as, as a top quality, you know, which is what everyone is looking for. And we're looking in, across the country at a grass-fed PGI, which will help the marketing of, of our food produce. But if that is, is, if that is coming from what is deemed to be, and I emphasize deemed to be tainted ecosystems, um, then, then the food itself is tainted and it could undermine what we're trying to do there. Now, that's on the farming side and a lot of the focus has been around farming. But the other issue, of course, is what's going to happen in rural areas. And we've seen what's happened with the Natura uh, the directives, uh, the, the special areas of conservation, special protected areas. They came in in 1997. When they came in first, a lot of people wouldn't have actually realised that they were going to, going to end up where they are. And look, we see, even in, in Galway, we see the impact we see the impact on the N59 there that they're, they're trying to realign that road is causing a major problem to get planned information on that. But Galway City itself, the bypass was supposed to go around Galway City. Um, you know, that has been held up because of, of those directives. Um, and obviously then at, at a more basic level for someone trying to get planned information uh, even if they're not on a designated site, if they're adjacent to that, then there's problems and there's screening out and all that. So at a minimum, it increases the cost but in lots of cases, it actually stops planning happening at all. Uh, and that has a massive impact. And what I would say is this law is going to be multiples of that because anywhere there's peat soils or anywhere you're going to have, you know, what's called Annex 1 habitats, which would be predominantly peat soils, um, then this law will impact. It will find its way in to uh, county development plans and it'll have to be considered in that line when it comes to planning. But, I mean, to be honest, finally on this one, and uh, I know you're in Strasbourg, um, but... Where, where does survival come into all of this? Where does where does common sense and survival come into this? That's a good question. I suppose David, David that's more a question for MEPs. Look, I, I do see uh, MEP uh, Luke Flanagan has said he's, he's not going to support this. Uh, I'd like to think that we can get support from other MEPs here in Ireland. Um, but I, I suppose that's that's an issue for for the election as well. And, and um, but you'd like to think that that people would look at that. There is a fear there. There's definitely a fear amongst politicians that if they seem to upset, you know, the green lobby, then um, that's not a good place to be. But like, it's about 
the problem, of course, with that is that, you know, it, it has to be it has to be sensible. And, and some of this is just not sensible. And we can protect nature, but not the way we're doing it. And, and I think maybe as a, a last point, just as regards this, is when, you know, I mentioned about the insurer directors and they were brought in onto land that was deemed to be in a good status. It had to be in a good status in order to get a designation. Uh, and it was in good status because farmers had it in a good place. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we look at the report that has gone back since. Most of those habitats, 85% of those habitats have regressed. And they've regressed because they weren't allowed, farmers were not allowed, and we say farmers and by and large farmers, weren't allowed to carry out the farming activity required to, conser to, 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 to conserve it. So what we have uh, is preservation over conservation. Uh, so the idea here is that you just, you just stagnate everything and that doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, and that's a problem when it comes to nature. But I think this point has been missed and missed badly. It is, and and again, I'm I'm not going to draw you into the controversy of it. So I'm not Vincent Roddy, but we're such a small island, as against the rest of the whole of Europe and the rest of the world as well. We're such a tiny, tiny, tiny little island. We are absolutely doing our best from a farming community to recycling and these new, these these new recycling stuff that you get for your cans and your bottles and all that type of stuff. We're doing our best, and like we are not we are not culprits when it comes to climate change. Not fully. We're not fully we, we you know but it's it's crazy but there you go no no you're, you're right that is you're right and we're doing our best i think and that is that's all we can do yeah listen enjoy strasbourg and uh, don't behave yourself but thank you indeed for joining us uh, today vincent uh, roddy national president uh, of the inhfa now can i just remind you just again today that um the Banlaslow Flood Relief Consultation is taking place today in the Shearwater Hotel. And we spoke to Senator Ashley Dolan about this yesterday. Um, so if you're in and around the uh, area, um, again, homes, businesses, um, and anybody who's been affected by floods or otherwise, and wants to be kept fully informed on this one, uh, you can go along to uh, the scheme today. And they would like you to um, pop into the Shearwater and basically sit and talk to the people involved and educate yourself in relation to how this is going to affect you. So we told you about it yesterday. We're reminding you about it today. And uh, again, it's in the afternoon, so it is if you want to go there and just meet with the key people involved and educate yourself in relation to uh, the direction that they're taking, where it's going to be, and be part of the decision indeed for the future. And not just for yourself, but for the generations that are not born now that they won't have to live through what other generations had to live through from there. So please, please uh, do uh, get involved in that. So Shearwater Hotel, further details can be had from St. Ashley Dolan's office. Please go along this afternoon and uh, do engage. A very good morning to you. Welcome into today's programme. The Time to Reflect survey was launched yesterday by the Irish Hospice Foundation at their eighth biannual forum. And I'm joined on the line by Paula O'Reilly, CEO of the uh, Irish Hospice Foundation, and she joins me on the line. Paula, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us uh, today. The Time to Reflect survey is very good because you're reflecting on what period of time here? So we, we completed the survey towards the end of 2021, coming into 2022. So there was st still a level of restric restrictions still in place. And the restrictions looked, and the survey looked indeed, at people who were affected by COVID-19 and loved ones who were sick or dying. 
Yeah, so what we thought was really important was because it was such um, a, a difficult time, it was really important that we heard from people who had experienced the death of someone during that period and how had their perception of death, dying and bereavement uh, changed as a result, but also how their experience was. So of the 2,200 people that were surveyed, um, 50% of people who responded um, had lost um, someone close to them. And of that, 40% of these had lost more than one person. And actually, uh, in terms of the reported cause of death, 37% of people actually said it was sudden and unexpected. And the, and the top reasons given was that the person had either uh, died of a cancer diagnosis or a cardiac diagnosis. So, um, and actually of the population that responded as well, uh, one in five were healthcare workers who were obviously um, experiencing loss themselves, but also working within uh, within the healthcare sector at the time. So it really does give quite a, a rich sense of what it really felt like during that period. Paul O'Reilly, um, Chief Executive of the Irish Hospice Foundation. I mean, we found ourselves in a very difficult position when COVID arrived in. Hospitals did also, but I know many people and colleagues and former colleagues indeed uh, who lost loved ones and basically never got to say goodbye to that loved one. They were in a body bag and that was it. Uh, yes, and I think you, you'll see that from the report that um, certainly around the key findings was end-of-life care that over 50% of people you know, reported that they didn't get, um, that the person that died didn't get the end-of-life care, which they would have um, expected them to get and how difficult that was. Um, certainly some of the qu quotes, I mean, I can I, I can refer to one here where um, a, a family member talks about her mom who had a terminal diagnosis and was in hospital. And she said, my mother was left alone in a single room for over two weeks while cancer raged. This was the, was the experience as she approached the end of life. Nobody wants this. So certainly both um, family members reported the experience wasn't what uh, they would have liked. And also healthcare workers um, responded back and talked about the emotional burden that they felt in terms of being able to deliver that care. Um, but due to the to being so overwhelmed um, that they didn't get the time to give to people. So I think it was very challenging in terms of end of life care. And then following on from that, you know, people reporting that, you know, funerals and ceremonies because of the health um, the public health guidelines that we had on those, um, it was very difficult then for people to come together. And as a country, that's what we do well uh, is funerals and ceremonies and, and coming together to comfort people during their time of loss. So certainly the, the comments came back in terms of um, the pandemic had a significant impact on how people uh, said goodbye uh, to someone they loved, but also for the, for the grieving process afterwards. Those figures that you're talking about, 64% of those, 6 and 10 indeed, of those bereaved said that their ability to grieve was negatively affected. And that very point that you made yourself there, 7 and 10, 70% of people report that family and friends were excluded from funerals because of public health measures. I mean, the report itself, the Time to Reflect uh, survey itself, really throws up a lot of figures indeed. And if we ever are in the eye of a storm or have another pandemic, we should be looking at these. 
Absolutely. And I think, uh, um, you know, some some of your listeners this morning might be thinking, well, COVID seems uh, a long distance away now and we should be looking to the future. And really the purpose of this report is to listen to people's experience and look at how can we improve and inform public policy going ahead. So like that, where we see end of life care, um, you know, that's a really, really important in terms of the experience for the person and their family. So one of the recommendations is around, you know, specific training to skill all staff across the health sector in terms of delivering uh, compassionate end of life and bereavement care. Uh, similarly, as you said, you know, um, 40% of people had a real challenge in terms of getting bereavement support. Um you know, we know people were well supported by families and friends and people found alternative ways to support. But there was still 40 percent of people who said they did go looking for supports um, and unfortunately they weren't able to access them. So I think there is lessons to be learned. And I think having the voice of those that experienced it during that period um, is something that um, our, our policymakers, if there is um, a, a public policy review of our of our emergency measures, I think this report is obviously representative of a certain cohort um, and, and that brings with it limitations. But I do think there's certainly uh, information here that we can learn from. And again, maybe maybe not a, a question for you, Paul O'Reilly, CEO of the Irish Hospice Foundation, but maybe we, you could send a copy of this into public health and say, did we overreact in hindsight? Well, certainly, um, you know, uh, at our at our forum today, you know, we've we were engaging with the whole. Um, uh, we've invited all of the Irish public along to our, our our national conference, which is about having conversations on this topic, and we we have um, sent the report into to all. Uh, key public um, policymakers in the area. And I do think that, you know, the public health measures were brought in, obviously, to save lives, to prevent healthcare systems uh, becoming overwhelmed. But there's certainly a real opportunity for us to look at what was the experience and looking at the findings and the recommendations from this report that they would be considered uh, in terms of informing uh, future uh, future public policy and certainly the Irish Hospice Foundation as a national organisation on dying, death and bereavement um, are, are very keen to, to engage with public health officials um, on this very topic. And one of the stats that jumped out of me was over half, 54% stated that people in their community found other ways in the absence of traditional ones to honour the person who had died. And the one that struck me most, I have to say, almost half, 47% have given more thought to their own end-of-life wishes. Because I remember I had COVID uh, twice, I do believe, but the first time was fairly well early on in it. And I actually thought of my own end-of-life. I thought, God, is this is this going to be it? Is this where I'm going to die? Absolutely. And I think uh, there's there's a comment that someone put in the report. And I think we all uh, felt like that where he said COVID-19 brought death into sharp focus. And I, and I really do think it did. And I think it's a real opportunity as well in terms of, like you just said, you started talking about what would your own end of life 
plan look like and and, and who do you want around you and um, do you want to die at home do you want to get transferred to hospital so I think there was a lot of questions that people started discussing and and for us it's a real positive in the report that it has brought that to the forefront because as I said Ireland is known for maybe its funeral and ceremonies and wakes and maybe not as much talking about death um, so I think um, it's, it's a really good opportunity for us and at our conference uh, to look at how um, we can move that conversation on so that people can plan ahead. I mean, uh, the Irish Hospice has their Think Ahead planning pack, which uh, I think is a really good starting point in terms of uh, starting the conversation. Um, and it is those things of, you know, it's easier to have the conversation when you're well. It's always harder to have that conversation when when you're sick. Absolutely. My abiding memory was um, day one of my COVID getting one of those uh, oxygen um, machines that go onto your finger and you had to have oxygen levels of 98 and if it went down below 98 or 97 or 96 you thought you were dying altogether I suppose there was a, there was, there was a lack of education definitely in, in, in my in my head there was and I had I had every sort of machine going blood pressure oxygen the whole kit and caboodle so I was a, I was a pharmacy to myself I was just excessive which are, there you go um, Paul O'Reilly thank you for joining us where can they get further details of uh, the Time to Reflect survey so the the report is on the Irish Hospice Foundation uh, website and I am conscious as well that even when I was reading the report, I lost my mother um, before COVID. So my experience was different, but I'm sure this morning's conversation may have brought up some memories for people. So what I would say as well, we do have our bereavement support line, uh, which is 1-800-80-70-77, uh, which is also on the website if people do want a confidential space to talk as well. Well done. Keep up the good work and thank you for joining us today. Paul O'Reilly, CEO of thank the Irish so Hospice Foundation. Time. Thank you for joining us. Uh, today. Now I got some photographs in so I did in the last uh, little while uh, in relation to Miller's Lane and the pitch up there and I see where the ball the, the net behind the um, was bitten and broken so it is the ground is well torn up there so it is with those five horses um, and these photographs there's no sign of the five horses at all um, but the ground was well well ploughed up so it is well ploughed up anyway let me go back to um the whole situation in relation to Natura and the vote that's currently going on uh, in um, Europe. I want to go to Central Pauline Riley, who joins me on the line today. Central Riley, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. Thanks for joining us uh, today. You, you don't believe that this vote will go through, do you? I have a I have a real concern, Keith, and I my particular concern is that we have a rise of a quite an anti democratic. Um, in I suppose population um, centre in Europe and a kind of a far right I suppose for want of a better word um, who are voting against all of these kind of progressive measures which is why it's more important than ever that we get the right people into Europe and um, fortunately the other part, political parties in Ireland um, the Greens, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have all indicated that they will vote in favour and uh, and that includes members who are members of these larger groups in Europe. They're actually going to vote against their European parties when it comes to this today. And the other side then, when you look at it then, for the, um, 
the Irish Natura and Hill Farm Association there in Strasbourg this morning and they're they're pushing indeed uh, that this vote be postponed and, or otherwise but they're under no illusion it's not going to happen but they're very confident that this is going to go through and that in about three or four years time uh, this is going to have a major effect on Ireland. Look, I mean, I can understand because I think the people have been stoked up. I can understand that people have fears. They have fears primarily because our climate is changing. Um, our biodiversity is, uh, is, you know, lost in many areas. And then that is putting a pressure on farming um, futures. And this actually is a way to protect the future of farms in Ireland and right across Europe, and indeed to protect our food security. So that's really what's underpinning a lot of this, as well as as uh, restoring nature. And when you see the other um, political parties in Ireland backing it, and they don't have to, we don't all have to go the same way, um, even those who are in government together, they're saying that um, on on balance, this is, this is the right thing to do. It's the right thing for small farmers. And, you know, us in the Green Party, um, what we want to make sure is that people realise that a lot of what's what's in this nature restoration law that's been proposed at the European level, that's already happening in Ireland. Ireland aren't behind in this because, because um, under this government, we are implementing a lot of the changes. But under this, it means that there's a huge investment, huge financial investment. We've committed to over three billion um, for restoring nature in Ireland and mm. protecting family farms. And, and that's already happening even without this. So look, I'm really disappointed, I suppose. There are some particular MEPs like Luke Ming Flanagan who has said he's going to vote against. But, you know, on the, for the most part, our, um, our MEPs are voting in favour and we need to get more people in like that who will vote for nature because it's the only future for okay. our children. It's the only future for, for, for farmers and as well. Um, it, it absolutely has to be done or we're going nowhere as a, as a continent. All right, Kelly, just um, while I have you, I have two other subjects I want to um, discuss with you, if you don't mind, but Minister for Education, Norma Foley, is to update the government on a review of the school transport scheme, which carries 160,000 students uh, on a daily basis. Um, it looks like as if she's going to try and make it easier on parents and students. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm the education spokesperson for the Green Party and I have been highly critical, I suppose, of the education department up to now because what we had wanted to see was that there'd be much more um, integration with the Department of Transport because the Department of Transport has been trying to implement changes, as everybody knows, in terms of, um, you know, reduction of, of uh, transport costs and um, rollout of the local link services right across Ireland, one new local bus service a week. And we've had, indeed, over 700,000 or 700% increase on uh, rural bus use since we went into government. Um, and, and we thought that we could, you know, really roll school transport into that. And I'm really hopeful today. It goes to Cabinet today. I'm really hopeful that that will have been taken on board. I know that there has been some work done with the Department of Transport as well. Um, and also this, uh, uh, you know, kind of antiquated system where you can only get transport if you're going to your local school. Um, I, I don't think that that's, that's uh, really what, what people need anymore because mm. you may need to go to a Gwail school, you may need to go to, you know, um, a multi-denominational school. And right now, they don't have to take that into consideration. They do for the most part when it comes to Gwail school, but I'm hopeful that'll be made easier. And also that those kind of 
criteria where you have to go to the nearest school to you yeah. and that that will go. Um, and also we need a commitment that there will be a, an opening up of the eligibility so far more people can get on school buses. I mean, yes. in Galway alone, 30% of the congestion that we see on our streets from cars is people school being transport. brought to school yeah. because it's not safe enough for our mm. children and there aren't enough buses. So that's the bit that needs to be fixed and we could have a, a transformation in Galway if that was sorted out. Well, the current requirements is that a student uh, must live uh, 3.2 kilometres from a school uh, to qualify for the scheme and they're looking at two kilometre distance for that now. Yeah, and I mean, that's what, what we had been hoping for in the Green Party because, you know, from a emissions point of view, from a, uh, a congestion point of view, and then from just the well-being of students. Mm. I think two kilometres, nobody can be really expected to walk beyond two kilometres. I mean, maybe yeah. back in the day, people used to, but it's just not realistic. So but if you're talking beyond two kilometres, everybody's being driven. And that's the bit that needs to change. So, you know, if, if that's what comes out of this, and obviously, we'll, uh, I, you know, I, I'm hopeful because I'm in a little bit of the know, but if that's, if that's what comes out of it, that would be great. Okay. Um, but I also think we need to do something so that those who are trying to get to multi-denominational schools are not told you can't get on the school bus because there's a school nearer to you um, when they, um, you know, when it, when it, it doesn't the criteria suit doesn't need, their family. Criteria doesn't need to be looked at. But I mean, yeah. I, when I was reading through the briefs that was coming into me this morning, and there could also be moves to make transport available to primary school students who live just one kilometre from school. God's sake, we're trying to get kids healthy and I know on a rainy day they're going to get wet and all that, but God above it, one kilometre no, each way to get to no, school is we, not too much. We, we'll, we'll have to see where that lands, but I mean, ideally you would have places which are which are safer and, you know, um, there's been some great work done on safe routes to schools, um, but we do have to have a safer environment because, I mean, I cycle all around the city, um, indeed, like a lot of people, uh, in Galway, walk more than anything else because I love a, a walk, um, and we're we, we also all use cars. But it's it's about making the choice um, safer and easier, so that I mean, even within one kilometre, it's not safe sometimes for people to cycle to school. You you only have to go down the Western Distributor Road, and no, how many roundabouts are there? And the, and there's no um you know there's no way to get around on a bike. So you know those are the things that um, are being addressed now. Um, and we, but with they, it needs to go hand in hand then, I think, with a proper school bus um, service. And one as well that says, well, you know, there's a local link service. Why can we not join that up so that it's local link and school yeah. and that it gets kids to school for the proper time and doesn't arrive 10 minutes after school? So join we've made thinking. huge strides, huge strides, but this is the next step in that. Can I ask you finally, just to Minister uh, for Media and Catherine Martin is facing questions this evening in the Oroxus Committee about her handling of the events that led up to the resignation of Shu and Nee Ralla as chair of the RTE board. Um, again, she's going into, I know that she was on prime time on Thursday night and all of that type of stuff, but uh, where is this going to end? I mean, I've, I've said it publicly and I said again that Minister for Media Catherine Martin is a good minister. And I worked close with some of her people in the in the office. But what was was she just was she let down by some of her own team on this one? Um, 
I think, you know, I think to be honest with you, everybody is a bit fed up of the whole RTE thing at this stage. But at the root of this is like a really, really important thing, which is about public service broadcasting. And um, we've now had drip feeding of information for months and months and a, and a real lack of clarity. And um, I think the minister was left in a really difficult position that she was either by, by said... Her, by her officials, know, though, by her officials. Well, I think. Look, let's let's wait and, and see with the with the um, with the committee later. But well, will I she mean, be forced it out is of clear, office it today? Is, well, it, well it, it is clear that that that, that uh, everybody involved in this, including the chair, unfortunately, and, and you know, I have massive respect for the chair, the, the former chair of of RTE, but the minister asked clear questions and was given incorrect information. And, you know, you can go back and say, what was the root of that? And if you bury down into the detail months before, um, maybe there was some detail, but surely the chair would still know what the answer to the question is. And so, you know, you're leaving a, a minister in a difficult position. Either you say, I was given the incorrect information um, and I should have been given the correct information. Or you say, well, no, sure, that's grand. And when are okay. you facing such crisis, like four million is how much was paid out over the I last know, 10 know, years know, or so in exit packages, you know, it's, it's, alone. It's so there balanced. has to be some accountability for that. But it's ruined it for the rest of the public, uh, for the public service. So it has uh, not, not, well, just, not look, just RTE you know, and maybe, maybe, that, uh, maybe that lid needs to be lifted. I, I, think, I think absolutely. I mean, the RTE is not the only one who provides public service broadcasting. It's really important, but it's all of the um, all of the papers, all of the radio stations that we have, and we have a really good reputation yeah. um, when it comes to media uh, in Ireland. Much, much better. Like I do, I do observations for elections in other countries, and media is at the root of a lot of the problems okay. around misinformation. You just don't get that in Ireland, um, and we need to do everything we can to ensure that we're getting timely information um, and, and and I do think that we need proper controls over the finances and unfortunately there's this separation okay. and unfortunately and, and unfortunately there's a separation between politics and the public service broadcasting because otherwise how could you, you have uh, to ensure have that you have proper questioning, you know, there needs to be a certain distance but if somebody asks you a question, you need to give the honest answer, you know. Um, but look, I, I think this is a really unfortunate situation. I really feel feel for everybody in the circumstances. All right, Senator Pauline O'Reilly, thank you for joining us. I do believe that's been um, shown live on Oroctus TV and other channels tonight from 7 o'clock onwards as well. Now, Noel McDonough is opposite me and he's been very respectful. Morning to you. Morning, Keith. Come, in, you? come in a little yeah. bit there. Don't be afraid of that no. microphone. Uh, you're heading for the Dublin Marathon, so you are, and you're uh, fundraising in aid of the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Uh, you're from Bohemore. What made you decide on this? Yeah, I'm Yeah, I'm from Bohemore, just um, just down the road there. Um, basically, it was a... When I got the chance to, to run in it, um, it's basically my father uh, passed away from uh, vascular dementia. Um, and being honest with you, the work the Alzheimer's Society do in in Ireland is it's, it's substantial, you know. So I just wanted to give back um, to basically to them, you know, and help them any way I can because their services are under quite a lot of strain mm. at the minute, you know. And would you be an active runner? Would you? Um, not to be honest with you, I started a couch to five k journey there um, in October. Um, so it's it's a good, very good. Yeah, I broke the, the thirty minutes in my uh, first race. 
Good and, and then I did, I did the Field of Athenry then in uh, in St. Stephen's Day in Athenry. And I broke the hour as well for the 10k in my first go. So um, it's just, it's, I've kind of got bitten by the bug, so to speak, you know. Oh, were you athletic as a young fella? Um, not really, you know. Played a bit of hurling with Mellows up until about 12 or 14, you know. But never really, oh. you know, I, I played it. I was kind of fanatically about golf there for a long time. But um, never, never to the extent that it's kind of taken off with the running, you know. Good on you. Yeah. So I mean, you have um, you have it's, and it's Noel McDonough and uh, lots of fantastic prizes. Where, where can they buy tickets, or where can they support you on this? Yeah, one? if um, I basically have an Instagram page, it's uh, at uh, so it's Noel's Couch to Marathon. Um, anyone that wants to go on there for a look, um, basically I have a Just Giving page. So if they go on to Just Giving um, and search in the top right hand corner, search Noel and then McDonough M C D O N A G H. They have it done that it's all the one word. And that's how you find my page. And anyone that donates, so for example, if you donate a tenner, you get one ticket into the raffle, which I have loads of fantastic prizes, over 700 euro worth. Um, and anyone that donates then is gets their name in the draw, you know. And you even have a QR code on it, so you're making it very yeah. easy. Oh, I am yeah, making it easy for people, you know. I've, I have the poster up now in a few places, but I kind of let it grow organically there for the last while, you know. So I'm kind of giving it a big push in the next few months. I have a target of about 2,000 to raise. So I'd love to surpass that. At the, at the minute, it's uh, 720 I'm at. So, you know, every every little helps, you know. And wh- when exactly? Wh- what date is the um, marathon on? The marathon is the, is the bank holiday weekend in October. So I think it's the 27th of October. So I hope to have the draw two weeks previous uh, to that, you know. So yeah. you have a good bit of training that you can get in between now and then. Oh, yeah, that's the plan. Like I have a half marathon booked for, uh, Kinv- er, for Killarney in June. And I'm just kind of stepping it up gradually, you know, even with the miles on the road, just taking it easy, and just up in the ante every week, you know, trying to stay injury free, really. Yeah. And do you feel better when you're doing this? Oh, yeah, brilliant. It's like running the clarity for the brain, you know, is unbelievable. You know, the, the, health, the health differences and the mental health differences, I, I find are, you know, they're chalk and cheese. Like, I mean, I, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for running, you know. And because your dad had vascular dementia, are you are you concerned about that? Um, no, like, like he he would have had it based on his heart. He had a heart condition, the poor man, you know. Um, so that obviously the brain was starved of oxygen, you know, for over a long period of time. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's as far as I go, I don't. I no, I'm not too worried about it for myself, you know. But I just want to raise the awareness, you know. If families are out there suffering, you know, there's lots of great facilities and on offer with the um, Alzheimer's Society, like the community cafe, you know, because as a family member of someone with with that had uh, dementia, you know, it can be isolating for the family. Yeah. So it's it's you know it's it, they're trying to make it more inclusive with community cafes because. It's just trying to make it easier for the family to communicate and not feel isolated or alone, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, you have 100 euro there for the uh, Slow Roast Lock Ray, 100 euro watch for the Golden Ground Stadium, you have Hampers from Candyland, you have Wash and Cut, and treatment for gra- gravity hair set on. Now, you and I won't be using that, so we won't. <laughs> uh, you have um, signed um, bo- um, kickboxing uh, gloves there, you have vouchers for Craig Boy Golf Academy, you have skin fade and beard trim uh, for 3Bs Barbers, and you have two green feet for Craig Moore Golf Course, Obviously, spent a lot of time in Craig Moore Golf Course. Yeah, you? yeah. Well, I over the years I would have. I was a member out there a couple of years back, you know, during COVID and that, you know. So, but um, I'm very grateful to anyone like that has jumped on board. I have, I've had a lot of good businesses come on board, you know, good local people like you know, in the likes of, you know Connor and Sarah in Slow Roast, and you've Noel Barrett in. I've the three month uh, membership as well uh, for the overall winner, three month free membership for the the Galmont, uh, mm. the the gym in the Galmont, you know, and Noel Barrett was very kind to give me that. 
that prize, you know, as a main prize, you know. So stuff. Listen, if they want to donate, so tell me where they go on this one. So go to Just Giving. Yeah, to go to Just Giving and in the top right hand corner, there's a search bar. And if they search Noel and then space McDonough, M-C-D-O-N-A-G-H. And for every 10 euro donated, like so if a 20 euro donation, just put your name to it. And I'll put your name in the raffle. Um which will probably be more than likely be two weeks before the event, which will be the first week of October, you know. And you'll inform people of what they've... Oh, yeah, well, they can follow my Instagram page, which is Noel's Couch to Marathon, where I'm updating people on my runs weekly and basically keeping them updated on, you know, how the fundraising is going and my training is going as well, you know. So you're your you're own little operation transformation over there? Yeah, pretty much, yeah, yeah. Trying to keep myself busy, you know. But anyone, I'm trying to encourage anyone back into running, you know. If anyone, like I'm not a coach by any means, but if anyone wants to drop me a message on Instagram, I'll happily, you know, set the ball rolling for them, you know, as to how to get out. Because it can be intimidating on the road starting off running. Absolutely. So there's always avenues to get into. But couch to 5Ks is where I started, and that's where I recommend anyone to start, really, you know. All right, listen, well done to you. Congratulations. Thanks very much. And uh, keep keep going. You're at 770 currently and you're trying to get to 2,000 and that money will be used uh, wisely. Uh, Noel McDonough from Boromore, thank you indeed. For Thanks, William Keith. Uh, Thanks team. for great, great community down there, I have to say. And they'll all be behind you, so they will, each and every one of them uh, from there. Now, yet to come on the uh, programme today, by the way, we have loads more to come. Uh, we have trending topics and we're also, we have a lovely bit of music coming the way indeed from a lady who has... Um, connections to Galway but she's going to be in the Bridge Mills this coming Friday night and she joins us in studio but it's a lovely bit of French music, it's beautifully done. So with that and more between now and the end of today's programme. Now though let's head towards the 11 o'clock news and death notices.